Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about school funding. And the only hard and fast rule I've got is that taxes are not tuition. You can hear inappropriate conversations at home or on the go through Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. I have a couple of thoughts up front from essentially what I would view as a nonpartisan point of view about the ideas of uh, public education, school funding, different methods of managing um, education for kids, where society's role fits in, where society's role does not. And I mentioned right up front that it's a nonpartisan perspective because I really only have one or two firmly entrenched positions here, the chief one being the title of this show, Taxes Are Not Tuition. The other one, though, comes from a little bit of bias, so I'll kind of talk about the bias right up front. My wife and I both went to public schools. My children have both graduated from public schools. And while I see that there's a lot of things wrong there, I still believe that it's a model that needs to be defended. And we'll talk a little bit throughout this episode, including some in the Different Drummers segment, on exactly why that is. Hidden behind that notion, though, that I'm not antagonistic toward public schools is the idea that we are no longer an agrarian society. So when you hear arguments about how schooling should be done, especially when you hear what I would consider to be the primitivist arguments coming from some in the neoconservative side of our political spectrum, this idea that everything in America should be handled exactly the way it was in colonial times, and that if our founding fathers didn't recognize the existence of something or even the possibility of it, it therefore cannot be constitutional. My attitude about the U.S. Constitution is that it's a document that does not prohibit anything that came later in technology, later in societal structures. It enables, it informs, it may challenge certain political you know, structures that we may want to put in place that are unconstitutional. Some of the movements that I've talked about in the episode on the Electoral College about one man, one vote, some of that flies directly foul of the U.S. Constitution and clearly things that the you know, constitutional authors, the founding fathers, if you will, put in place specifically to give a decided edge to less populated parts of the country. Well, I don't think you can just wipe those away with a new political paradigm. I think you've got to deal with the Constitution where the Constitution specific. But where the Constitution is not specific, I reject the idea of a lot of people that I describe as primitivists. I don't know if they would find that offensive or not. They shouldn't. It accurately depicts the point of view. But whether you talk about being strict constructionalist or um, rigid constitutionalist or whatever you may say, this idea that the founding fathers were unaware of this particular thing, maybe it's a social issue, maybe it's a political reality that we're dealing with today that we weren't then, or perhaps just technology itself – that the Constitution therefore forbids anything? Now, this is a bit of an exaggeration. I'm taking some liberty, but I'm not taking as much liberty as you might think with the perspective of certain key influential, I don't know, judges, politicians, and others. So to me, you almost have to look back at constitutional times and say, we were organized in a particular way because our society could be described as being more agrarian than it is today. We were largely an agricultural economy. This is particularly true in the American Southeast. 
we're not the same place we were then. You know, round about the time the Civil War is wrapping up, we are quickly becoming a manufacturing economy. And that manufacturing economy, to function effectively, was going to require certain things, a certain baseline amount of knowledge, a certain set of disciplines, some skills of those workers, if we were going to be able to function in that paradigm. But guess what? We're not in the industrial age anymore either. We are in the information age. And when we look at the state of public education in particular in America today and compare it to where American students stand versus the rest of the world, it's inconceivable to me that many people are suggesting that the answer is to go back to one-room schoolhouse, uh, local-led education only, uh, parent-led education only, and a lot of things taught in schools today, things not just related to controversial topics like human, human sexuality or certain parts of biological sciences, but even the most simple and basic you know, scientific knowledge we have, things like chemistry and geology, also should not be taught in schools. It seems that running in fear of ideas that maybe you weren't taught when you were in school 40, 50, 60 years ago, running in fear of those ideas is not the right approach to handle the challenges of a world that is not just beginning an information age, but has been well entrenched into an information age. And if we have a sense that maybe educationally there's some challenges, there's some places where we may have fallen behind, the first question that comes to my mind is whether we want our students, perhaps even in this case our children's education, to be limited to the knowledge of one generalist who is going to cover every topic, even if that generalist is a parent. So when we talk about the different models that you hear discussed, homeschooling, I'm not necessarily a fan, primarily because I don't think that highly of myself as a teacher at the crucial middle school and high school age. Maybe I wasn't terrible at elementary school, and it's not that I don't know enough to convey information. A lot of it is about having the patience enough to properly convey information, that I tend to be better with people who are very late in high school or out of high school. And a lot of that is because of the controversial approach that I use to conveying information. I believe that truth trumps everything. And I'm kind of in the minority on that, I think. There's a lot of people who will tell you that they believe that the truth trumps everything. But what they really mean about the truth is very different. It's why you hear controversies in states like Texas over the history being taught in the history textbooks. It's why science class is a controversy in many pockets of the country, not just in places that we call red states. So I, I didn't feel I was the ideal person for that. But you have the homeschooling model. Then obviously the largest model is public schools. Public schools begs the question of what's the other type, and that type is private schools. And somewhere kind of in between those two, closer to the public school model, to be sure, is charter schools. There are other different varied examples. But those are really the ones that I want to talk about. And I'm going to deal perhaps less with homeschooling because of dealing with the question of bias. Yes, I have friends who have homeschooled their children. Their children have been successful. Uh, clearly, the model works. It does require one parent to commit a great deal of resources to that, to essentially not just the notion that you would have had 100 years ago about the, the mom being the homemaker, but in this case, the mom has to be just as much school teacher as homemaker. So that, that old model, this again, this primitivist idea of how do we do things in colonial times, yeah, that's not really what we're talking about. In an information age, the requirements of you as a teacher are much higher than they'd ever been, probably in any time in human history. So when somebody says, I'm signing up to homeschool my kids, they're signing up for that second full-time job. It probably means that they're staying at home, 
So the other full-time job is maybe a traditional homemaker sort of a notion. But the percentage of time spent in educating children in a homeschool environment has to be significantly higher than any percentage of that would have been at any other time in American history anyway. The other reason I've got an issue speaking objectively about homeschooling is that I have seen it fail spectacularly. There's a couple of ways that it fails. One is the person who's signing up to be the homeschooler, the teacher in that situation, doesn't grasp the requirements of the job, doesn't realize that you are now covering material that every single one of those other educators would cover. So if your child goes to junior high school and high school and takes seven courses, you're going to be trying to lead them through the modules of all seven of those courses. Now, there's online resources to help, but there's online resources and then there's online resources. And the other concern that I've got is what if the goal of being a homeschool teacher isn't the idea of saying, I just want to keep my kid away from bullying. Uh, Perhaps I know my kid is socially different or socially awkward, and I'm going to kick the can down the road on dealing with that as long as possible. There are pros and cons there as well. But maybe there's some wisdom in saying I'm going to bring my kid into the home environment. But a lot of times what it is is this notion of saying I want to take complete theological control of public education. And if I can't change the way the schools operate, then instead I'm going to change the way my kid operates within the educational environment by removing my kid from the educational situation or the other options altogether. Maybe I can't afford a private school. Maybe in the market that I'm in, the area that I'm in, there's not a good charter school option. And the public school is completely offensive to me in every conceivable way for no other reason than it doesn't begin each morning with a prayer. I know I'm not alone in feeling this way. A week or so ago, maybe two weeks back, I posted on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page a link from a blog called AlterNet. And uh, in the belief section, Amanda Marcotte wrote an article called Six Sneaky Ways the Christian Right Foists Its Biblical Agenda on America. Inside a longer article, one of these reads as follows. What they want. For the government to take money from the public school system and give it to private schools in the form of vouchers. They've had remarkable success at this by hijacking the larger secular debate over education. The secular reasons they give? The claim is that school choice creates competition among schools and improves educational outcomes. Public school charter systems are seen as an inadequate alternative because, well, they're supposedly not flexible enough. There's very little um, background to support that argument, but there it is. The unconstitutional actual religious reasons, they want the government to pay for the religious indoctrination of children. Even though the vouchers can, in theory, be spent on private secular schools, the way the program works in places like Louisiana makes it clear that this is about the government sponsoring of religious education. Now, if you're caught up in this debate and you don't feel like you have control over the government sponsoring religious education, either through a voucher program or having the government pay for faith-based initiatives through a charter school that is religious, the Louisiana example being cited in that article. One of the other ways to do it is just bring that education right into the home. So there's two questions. One question is, is that homeschool teacher going to devote the resources to being a good teacher? Again, I've seen this fail spectacularly. The other one is, what are we teaching? How well are we teaching it? And if we're teaching well enough that that student could have performed just as effectively inside their local high school's history and biology classes, then 
what exactly was the upside of removing the kid to begin with? Unless the education we're talking about is saying, you know, one-on-one, parent to child, this is a thing you have to learn and you have to get, you know, do well on the test. So we can continue to maintain this homeschool situation and not have that, you know, the state or anybody else come in and shut it down on us and send you back to the public school or force us to pay for a private school. But it's all BS. It's all nonsense. That's sort of anti-education. You know, where to me, education is about the idea of getting people together. I mean, an ancient Greek notion, getting people together, discussing things. Now, maybe it's a failure of a lot of public schools, either due to class size or other issues, that those discussions aren't taking place, that public schools are already committing the indoctrination that that alternate blog post accused homeschooling and private schooling in some cases of doing. Because there is no time for any sort of discourse, any sort of give and take. If it's all just, here's what I need you to know, and the reason why is because I said so, well, then it's a pretty pitiful education. And there are examples of public schools providing a completely insufficient education. Some of those reasons are due to funding. Some of those reasons are due to the student base. And a lot of those reasons have to do with the United States, anyway, spending the better part of 30 years trying to find a way to walk away from the well-being of a significant number of students. So when I get to the concept of public and private schools, which is where I'm going to go next, I'm going to save charter schools for the end. It's this notion of saying that are we trying to give kids the opportunity to fund education in multiple ways? Or are we trying to remove resources from public schools? Are we trying to make the public school system collapse, in other words? I would make an argument, and it's not necessarily one that I firmly believe in, but as a radical moderate, if I lean over toward the left side of the spectrum and sort of put a glass up to my ear and my ear up to the wall and listen to what's going on on that side of the political spectrum, there are interesting ideas over there that, again, I don't necessarily agree with, but are worth exploring, again, in a in a robust educational system, they're worth listening to. They're worth debating. It's worth pointing out the areas where these concepts are insufficient. And one of them is that the chief justification for the war on Iraq, conducted by George uh, W. Bush, was to create a collapse in the American economy, to at least create a collapse in the U.S. federal budget. Now, there are other reasons that have been given. We've heard about weapons of mass destruction, but it seems incongruous that anybody with half a brain would have bought any of that. I mean, a lot of Americans, certainly a lot of American legislators did. It wasn't hard at the time. If you go back, look at the records, you'll find lots of congressmen and lots of senators who bought the argument. But they bought the argument because they were lied to. Now, did the people who told the lies believe the lies? doesn't seem like that's a credible theory to me. It seems to me like exaggerations were being told. Perhaps outright lies were being you know, put forward, and the people who were doing that sort of obfuscation must have known they were doing it. The other theory, the one I've always been kind of fond of, was that you know George uh, W. Bush is a good son, loves his father, thinks George H.W. Bush was given a raw deal with not getting enough credit for rescuing Kuwait from the hands of the invasion by the Iraqis, that... You know, Saddam Hussein had been a bully on the world stage before, and he was being a bully now, and he was making the legacy of the Bush family look bad, and that maybe this was all really nothing more than somebody spit at my daddy, and now I'm going to go beat him up. That's always been my theory. I'm not saying that's the best theory in the world. I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but that's always been my theory. But there is another theory. The idea that spending two, three trillion dollars or more on a potentially endless war 
by having an, an, a kind of an amorphous war on terror concept and bringing in a state that was probably not a terror state in the purest definition of the terms, certainly had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda that we've been able to prove, despite another ridiculous sum of money spent by the U.S. federal government trying to find that link between the uh, nation-state of Iraq and Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. And, you know, what we found is probably what history will say that we always should have expected to find, and that's that Al-Qaeda found, you know, Saddam Hussein and the nation-state of Iraq incredibly offensive, not as offensive as the United States, but certainly nobody they wanted to be in bed with. Now, the theory is that if you get involved in this sort of war and spend something like $3 trillion in just Iraq alone, the pressure that that puts on the U.S. government is more dramatic than we know, frankly, more dramatic than we've acknowledged. So one thing, you're funding money into the military side of the U.S. budget, which is the side of the U.S. budget that your average hawk, that somebody like George Bush or his father or his grandfather would have been in favor of doing. But the other thing is you're, you're putting a lot of unpaid expenses into the budget. You're quite probably going to create a significant budget shortfall. That shortfall is going to put pressure on the economy that may just lead to cracks in that economy, which could then lead to a bailout of, I don't know, banks and real estate industries, which the ripple effect of all that is that a lot of people get laid off of work and now you have an increased amount of pressure in the area of unemployment and food stamps and child support and all those things where perhaps none of these negative consequences would have happened or at least wouldn't have happened to the degree they did if we hadn't gone off and spent a lot of unfunded money on a war that didn't make sense in the overall context of al-Qaeda and therefore was dubious at best to link it into the war on terror. So the theory, again, amongst a lot of people, were that George W. Bush and his administration were filled with people who just weren't that bright. But if you look at the people who were in his administration, it's at least possibly true that the whole goal all along was simply to collapse the American budget to make the federal budget so unworkable that the only way around getting the budget balanced again would be to decimate a lot of social programs on the other side of the budget that they weren't in favor of to begin with. So you ultimately fund $3 trillion into what's more or less military spending. This is not $3 trillion total over the course of, call it a decade. This is $3 trillion over and above the amount of money spent in the war on Afghanistan over and above homeland security expenses, over and above the basics of operating a military, things like recruitment, training, paying you know, military personnel, medical care for those who are injured, uh, retirement, all those other sort of things, you know, the, the screwdrivers, the, you know, the hammers, the toilet seats, none of that is part of this number. This number is simply military operations in Iraq itself to the tune of $3 trillion. And if you blow up the budget now, you can force conversations about entitlement, where it's hard for me to imagine that, first off, the pressure on our entire entitlement systems would be anywhere near as great today as they were if we hadn't spent the $3 trillion in the wrong place. But also, do those numbers add up to $3 trillion themselves, to where we're even talking about apples to apples? Because if we were talking about apples to apples, then you might have a more balanced approach to dealing with balancing the budget. But it's inconceivable to me that it makes sense for us to look solely into areas like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, you know, welfare, food stamps, other programs like that, when we're not being honest with ourselves about where a lot of our budgetary troubles came from. They came from bailing out the banks and other industries. They came from Iraq and the second war we conducted there. 
Now, what does any of this have to do with school funding? Simply to say that if you've got a paradigm where it's, you know, a good strategy from a politically conservative perspective to create a budgetary constraint on an entity such that it fears not just being out of balance, but potentially fears being bankrupt. And in response to that budgetary constraint, you can then start dismantling things you don't like. Instead of having an honest policy conversation, you can force a crisis, in other words. That is how I personally understand the logic behind people saying we are going to take money out of public education and give it to families to use as tuition, to pay tuition out of taxes to a private school or some other non-public education entity. Let's remember, though, that I started with an assumption, and that assumption was that public schools need to do better, that public schools are failing parents in lots of different ways. But I'm also going to make the distinction between two different kinds of parents. So first, if you're a student in a public school who's dealing with a bullying paradigm, who is dealing with a situation where they're not getting the educational opportunities they need, they're ready to advance to a higher form of math than that particular school is offering, or at least offering credibly, then I think that those parents need the ability to move their kids to a different public school without a lot of red tape and without a lot of hassle. Likewise, if you're a kid in an inner city situation, you may find that you've got a gifted child who yeah, he's not going to do as well in school if what he's worried about the most is whether or not he's going to find himself in dire physical conflict or some other form of violence on any given day-to-day basis. So there's work that needs to be done on the school front. Here's an article that I shared a few years ago, 1998 as a matter of fact, in just one of these types of discussions when this whole voucher concept was actually running a lot more hot and heavy than it even does today. And my answer was basically saying that just because we know that parents really need more options, more say, maybe more control over their public school choices, doesn't necessarily in and of itself endorse this this voucher idea, this your taxes are a tuition that you can take to any place and get an education in any other way kind of a concept. Because my number one issue with it is that public education is a baseline expectation. It may not have been at the time of colonial America, but that was an agrarian society. Not, and we're not even in an industrial society. We're in an information age, and public education is a baseline assumption. American parents need more freedom to choose between public school locations. Many problems children have in public schools could be corrected with an element of choice. You often hear people say that increased public school options won't be satisfactory. For the record, Americans are as free now to choose private education for their children as ever in our history. All of the options still exist, including investing in a prep school or teaching children at home. Since the calls for choice and freedom are again echoing through the halls of schools and government, let's examine the impact of the plan. What happens if we take the tax money and give parents those funds as a voucher to pay for private school tuition? There's three possible impacts. Impact number one, an insignificant number of children transfer to private schools. Impact number two, an overwhelming number of students transfer. A likelihood if the program is as crucial as proponents say it is. Impact three, the response falls somewhere in between, probably due to efforts by politicians or even private school administrators to close the floodgates. Impact one is a waste of valuable resources. Why convert an old model, regardless of its flaws, to a lackluster alternative? 
if only a handful of students move from public school to Catholic school, for example, then the church and other charitable organizations should step in with scholarships. Impact 2. Well, this one begs the question, are we not turning private schools into public schools? There are two solidly architectural reasons why this question is not rhetorical. First, where will the private schools put the crush of eager new students? Second, what will the boards of education do with abandoned public school property? If large numbers of students transfer, then the vouchers will be used by private schools to build new facilities with taxpayer money. Of course, public schools could sell its abandoned locations to the overpopulated private schools. However, this marquee shuffling is plainly silly. Less obviously, but no less validly, such a maneuver exposes the voucher proposal as an abdication of society's responsibility to provide public education for all children. To achieve Impact 3, some students will be left out of the exodus to private schools. Who makes these decisions, and how do they make them? Generally, for public schools or government to define who must stay or go undermines the entire notion of vouchers, the entire idea of parental choice. The proposal is being pushed by people who do not want state employees making such decisions. Private schools are the most likely party to control the floodgates, and their methods will remain the same as they've always been. Academic standards and cold, hard cash. Private schools can limit the dangers of impact, too, by maintaining strict academic standards. Of course, students who meet the college entrance standards can and should get help through scholarships, as concluded from impact number one. It's funny we talk so much about how important it is for the private sector to take care of the needy and the underprivileged and so forth, and the government shouldn't be doing it. Now, there's, of course, there's two thoughts on this. There's a neoconservative idea that people who are poor and disadvantaged should just go ahead and die and go away. But there's this Christian notion that we don't want the government involved. We don't want the state to do it. We don't want tax money doing it. And yet here we go. Rather than giving money to a foundation that provides scholarships for kids who could afford then to go to a private school, whether their taxes stayed the same or not, we're instead talking about using our tax money to drive that solution in a way that seems incredibly hypocritical to me, if you look at the dogma behind the neoconservative point of view. Instead of attracting newcomers, academic standards would be used to restrict most students. That's the biggest difference here when we're talking about impact number three, this idea of controlling the floodgates. It's not that the entire source of the program or the juice behind the program is getting students out of a bad situation into a good one. Now it almost becomes the idea of trying to control how many students can get out of the bad situation and into the good one, and what's left behind for them if they're left behind. These students would be left holding vouchers that aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Worse, they would be abandoned to the failing public system with even fewer total resources because of diverted tax revenue. At least the option of using standardized test scores as a floodgate is not as cynical as cold, hard cash. Unfortunately, money has been used to keep undesirable students out of private schools, and nothing in the proposed voucher system changes that fact. Private schools would be forced to offset the expenses of expanding the student population. Even if additional buildings and real estate were not necessary, private schools would still have to increase the expenses for supplies and labor. If no new teachers were hired, then prep schools would lose their attractive teacher-to-student ratio, a failing of these public schools in many instances. An increase in private school tuition, either out of necessity 
or in an effort to exclude undesirable students, would lock out the family that the voucher program proposes to help most. The poor, trapped, inner-city student would be left behind with no new freedom and all the choices made by government or private school officials. Clearly, all three impacts of a voucher program fail. Despite anecdotes from a carefully controlled short-term test or two, vouchers clearly take resources away from students with the greatest need in order to subsidize private schools. Which students should we take in mind when we're tabulating our financial support for public education? The future university co-ed, who could earn a prep school scholarship, probably, or the poor student who still won't be able to buy admission into a private school with or without a voucher? I'll side with the latter. No government can force private schools to accept a poor student's tax money or the money of those with learning disabilities or other issues. Public schools will likely remain the only educational hope for them. Society cannot afford to ignore the student who remains in public schools. Voucher proponents incorrectly assume that tax dollars act as tuition. If parents of private school students shouldn't pay taxes to support public education, why should childless citizens either? A wise man once defined crazy as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Voted for a Democrat or Republican lately? Seen any difference? Feeling crazy yet? There is a cure for political insanity. You just need an injection of common sense. Watch out, though. It's a very big needle. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. I have a couple of thoughts on the economic side of this question, and I want to do it in the context of talking about the notion of being childless to begin with. Sometimes we're only going to get you know, the right answer to a question by doing something that I call magnification. Now, if you wanted to be uncharitable, you could describe it as exaggeration, and that's probably a fair accusation. But sometimes only by magnification, by drilling down in further, by extending the argument to the point where we understand where its absurdity lies, only then do we get a really good idea of whether or not we're actually in favor of it to begin with. But sometimes you have to pull back a little bit, and you have to say, hey, I need to understand the other issue here, that if we're going to talk about you know, whether you know, voucher systems and taxes and tuition makes any sense with regards to parents, we also have to talk about the same logic when it comes to those who've chosen not to be parents. Now, here's the argument that I will make, that public education particularly in the information age, but it's probably always been true, is an essential baseline that we need to set for the future of our society. Our country will not thrive or will not thrive long if we leave a big chunk of those who could be educated well behind because we've chosen not to educate them well. Public education is that important, meaning that it's important for people who have children who have graduated from high school and moved on in life. Those people still need to cover the tax burden of maintaining a public educational system. Likewise, people who've chosen never to have children. Same applies. But the logic I use has a lot to do with how our society deals with people who are childless. So I'm going to expand this concept a little bit and talk, you know, first about education, but maybe a little bit more about some other topics as well. But it all ties together. I believe that it's important for everyone to be treated with dignity and respect. This includes when it comes to children. It's equally great to choose not to have kids and to want to have kids and raise them accordingly as if you wanted to have them. I take this as a given, 
and I would address you know, most of the issues that are related to child neglect and child abuse and the failure of many parents to parent appropriately within this context. You do not have to have children. It's a choice. It's a choice whether the pro-life community wants to identify it as such or not. So here are two things that jump out at me when I think about this concept of being childless and the burden of public education. One, I sometimes hear older citizens remark that they always vote down school funding for U.S. public schools, where virtually all the money, the money comes from taxation. And the reason is that they no longer have any kids in schools. What a crazy position to take, I tell them, since the poorly educated members of our society will one day administer your medicine at a hospital or nursing home, or they'll manage your mutual fund, the one on which you plan to retire. The point is that all of us should have a focus on society raising good kids so we can live in a world filled with good adults. I'm not making the it takes a village to raise a child argument. That's a different conversation. But the development of children is not solely in the hands of parents. We occasionally see that done in a homeschooling situation and done well. And we've occasionally seen that done in a homeschooling situation where it's, well, it's been an abomination. So... This isn't just as simple as saying, as a parent, you should have just taken care of this yourself. The one-room schoolhouse idea is 250 years old. We don't live in that world anymore. Number two, I'm a big believer in workplace equality. I don't see issues surrounding children as an inequality issue, though, where you know parents with kids are treated differently in the workplace than parents without kids. It doesn't work that way. I see this as more of an equality consequence rather than an inequality issue. Here's what I mean. Equal pay and equal opportunity at work, still new concepts, and concepts we've not yet achieved, particularly on the pay side. 30 years ago, there was still a notion among some, what I would call cultural dinosaurs, that women would eventually go back home and leave the work to the men and stuff like that. Well, in that bygone era, you didn't have people leaving work early to take care of family and children issues at home because one entire gender was already consigned to that role full time. We don't live in that world anymore, though. With both parents working and women often in more important positions in the workplace, a doctor appointment or an incident in school could call either parent away from work. My wife and I chewed up a lot of paid time off on situations like these. We'd ended up voluntarily with actually having less holiday time, less vacation time, because we both worked. Connecting the two economic points, most economic productivity measures now assume that there will be a large number of two-worker families. It's built into our economic forecasts. It's part of our unemployment numbers. That then contributes to the tax revenue that goes into schools and other programs like Head Start, and actually many other ways that non-parents contribute to helping children grow up to be good adults. The two-worker system has a key either-or built into it, though. Either parents need the flexibility to make school plays and doctor appointments and other things related to their children, or kids get neglected and display more of the behavior that we expect parents to circumvent. The other option is to insist that only one parent work and the other one must be a homemaker. But that has economic consequences, not just smacking of totalitarianism. And if less money is being earned by the parents, then taxes on non-parents would likely have to be raised in order to fund public education. 
The bottom line is that society does bear an overall burden on behalf of children, but society wouldn't exist, at least not for long, without them. I mentioned charter schools, and I do intend to get there. I won't necessarily get there from the realm of personal experience, though, because honestly, when I was in high school, I couldn't conceive of it. Now, I lived in a smaller, you know, major city. It was still a big city, but it was a smaller one. Places like New York City, there was always going to be that um, school for the arts kind of option available, which in some ways we might think of as an early model for what has become charter schools today in lots of metropolitan areas. But before I get back to the concept of charter schools and how that may or may not compare to public education, I wanted to do something intentionally this year that I haven't done in the last couple, and that's I want to speak more directly to sports. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm at IC underscore Greg there. Uh, Inappropriate Conversations on Twitter talks about sports a lot more than I do here on the show. And I also probably talk about it more on Twitter you know, just in you know, live tweeting events and responding to things that are happening because the only reality TV I watch is sports. Then I do on the Facebook page. The Facebook page is, you know, more, you know, longer form essays, long, bigger ideas for want of a better word. But I do intend to speak maybe a couple of times this year, which would definitely be an increase over last year, about sporting figures as different drummers because unmistakably I've been just as influenced by key figures in sport as I have been influenced by key figures, well, probably in politics. I can't make that claim about musicians or theologians, but certainly about politicians, I can. So today's Different Drummer is one of my all-time favorites, Kansas City Chiefs and uh, University of Alabama linebacker Derek Thomas. I want to speak about Thomas from a couple of different perspectives. First, as a football player, that is how I'm citing him. But I also want to speak to him, you know, for the work that he has done reaching out to the maybe the less fortunate parts of the communities that he's lived in and specifically how he's tried to do things which reach into the educational environment. One of the happiest days of my life as a sports fan came in 1989. In fact, it was probably about this time of year. We're getting into this show being released more or less in conjunction with the NFL draft. It wasn't necessarily planned that way, but it's a very nice coincidence, and it's a coincidence I've tried to hold on to, meaning that, well, I've always planned to put out two shows a month. I'm looking forward to the month of May and saying, hey, this may be a month where I put out three in April and only one in May. We'll see how it goes. But I really want to have this in place around the time that the NFL draft is happening, because that's really the way I think of Derek Thomas. I'll talk about my experience you know, as a fan of football and as a fan of him as a player earlier than that. But to be honest with you, it's been very hard, if not impossible, for me to document the claims that I'm going to make about the early years of Derek Thomas, you know, in the public limelight as a football player. But there's no denying the, uh, you know, his move from Alabama to the Kansas City Chiefs, well documented. And on draft day, when he was picked in the first round with the fourth overall pick, uh, just behind Barry Sanders, I believe, as a matter of fact, you got probably my all-time favorite defensive player, my all-time favorite offensive football player in the same draft being picked back-to-back by consecutive teams. And in fact, one of my my greatest personal sports spectating experiences was sitting in Arrowhead Stadium for a game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Detroit Lions, watching both of these idols of mine on the field at the same time. So, big fan of Derek Thomas as far as that goes, and I think his impact on the Kansas City Chiefs is unmistakable. I was watching television in the game where he got the seven sacks in one football game. 
Now, of course, a game that they ended up losing. But when we think of the concept of sack fumble, a pass rusher, either a defensive lineman or in this case, a linebacker, getting in there, tackling the quarterback before he can complete a pass. Well, you know, that's a sack. But I think of sack fumble as being almost synonymous with Derek Thomas. And that's that in the process of, you know, taking the quarterback to the ground for a big loss of yardage. Uh, also, getting him to fumble at the same time and having him lose the football as a consequence. Seattle quarterback Dave Craig got the last laugh that one Sunday afternoon by throwing a late touchdown pass to beat Kansas City. But it was the same game where he was sacked seven times. And it wasn't the Kansas City defense's fault that the Chiefs, being the beneficiary of that many sacks and more than just a couple turnovers, wasn't able to put enough points on the board to win that game. When you think about the greatest linebackers in the history of the NFL, obviously the position is synonymous with Dick Butkus. Most people, myself included, will concede that Lawrence Taylor from the New York Giants was the player who redefined the position to what it really kind of is still today. But maybe I'm just too much of a Kansas City Chiefs fan for me to divorce that position from Derek Thomas. And Derek Thomas also had the other advantage of ending his legacy and not having an opportunity to make the kind of mistakes after he retired from the NFL that Lawrence Taylor did. Now, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. The truth of the matter is that Derek Thomas was seriously injured in an automobile accident in 2000 and died of complications related to a blood clot and, you know, the consequences of his paralysis. So his life was cut short, which is certainly one way to avoid having some of the legal issues that Lawrence Taylor and, and other people have had after they end their NFL playing days. But I seriously doubt that Derek Thomas was going to have those kinds of problems anyway. Let me start with a story that's basically apocryphal. I can't be 100% sure on rosters as deep as the University of Alabama that I'm remembering the players' names correctly. I know I have the era correctly in my mind, but I'm just going to go with my memory. And my memory tells me that early on uh, in his career, probably as a fresh, true freshman or redshirt freshman, his first game might have come in a kickoff classic against Ohio State, where late in the game, Alabama had built enough of a lead that victory seemed certain if they just stopped the big play. And so in a defensive maneuver, the Alabama coaching staff put in a young linebacker with a great deal of speed and good instincts, in this case, Derek Thomas, as you know, not just the nickelback, but the dime back in coverage to make sure that an Ohio State team that was down by more than two scores didn't get a quick score and onside kick and make the game a little bit too interesting at the end. And if I'm recalling correctly... Uh, that young player, who nobody had ever seen play before, committed not just one, but a couple of different pass interference violations that put Ohio State in a position to do exactly what the coaching staff had feared, get that first touchdown, set themselves up for a possible onside kick. And, you know, that young player got the quick hook. He was removed from play. And I remember commenting to my friends at the time, I don't think we're going to see that kid in Alabama's lineup anytime soon. I was right about that. Alabama won that game. And then the next football game, you didn't see this player on defense at all. But if I'm not mistaken, it was either the next game or the game after that, he began showing up in special teams situations, more or less an outside linebacker type role on kick defense. And it wasn't the first, you know, first or second time he was out there. He was blocking field goal attempts, disrupting punt plays, making a name for himself on special teams. In other words, keeping his chin up keeping a smile, keeping a positive attitude, finding a way to contribute, listening to what he was told, learning, and responding appropriately. The rest, as they say, is history. 
This is one of the most impressive linebackers in college football history, and he went on to be a more impressive professional player. But if I'm right, and I haven't been able to find confirmation one way or the other, his career may have started with a quick demotion to the special teams. His career may have started really with the same kind of embarrassment that it kind of ended with. My last memory of Derek Thomas was in a difficult game playing against arch rivals, the Denver Broncos, where the only shot at the playoffs for the Chiefs was winning that game. And the Kansas City football team was clearly beginning to feel a bit of a slide. Having been in the heart of his career, a perennial playoff team, a team that got to the AFC Championship game a couple of times, was maybe just a couple of plays away from the Super Bowl once, now being a team that wasn't going to make the playoffs. And I remember at least two plays in a row, maybe three plays in a row, where Derek Thomas was flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct, personal foul, face masks, just clearly losing his temper on the football field and eventually getting pulled from the game. Frankly, a decision the coaching staff should have made sooner. I mean, after the first flagrant face mask penalty and the player clearly still being angry and agitated and out of control, you might pull him out for at least a play. If he commits another face mask penalty on the very next play, then clearly this is on you as a coach and not necessarily on the player alone for the conduct. So I've seen both the highs and lows of Derek Thomas's career and have no doubt in my mind that he's absolutely deserving of his recent posthumous induction into the NFL Hall of Fame. But more than just what happened on the field, the X's and O's, uh, influencing the game, changing the game, being a you know, positive force in the locker room, Derek Thomas chose to be a positive force in the community. And he did so largely through his nonprofit organization, thirdandlong.org. Hi, I'm Derek Thomas of the Kansas City Chiefs. I founded the Third and Long Foundation in 1990 to help inner city kids succeed through learning to read. I truly believe an educated person can go into society and be whomever and whatever he or she desires. Except for the inability to dream big, no boundaries can stop a person. Third and Long helps kids learn to read while building self-esteem. Kids age 9 to 13 learn they can be successful if they're educated. Self-esteem comes with fun as well as hard work. They go on field trips throughout the year. They talk about their experiences at the Third and Long Luncheon Series. They participate in a Saturday reading club, a summer reading program, and a storytellers program. They attend a special tailgate party before one of the Chiefs games, and they decorate stockings at the annual Christmas party and help deliver them to area children in need. It helps people not to get in the gang because they're not on the street. They're somewhere doing something positive for their life, reading books and stuff like that. It's very educational. It teaches you how to read and write better. And it lets you learn to go for your goals. It's helping keep the kids off the street, give them something to do on Saturdays, and give them fun activities, places they might not never go. The third one is telling you to read more in class and to participate more and just read anytime I have a chance to. I grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood in Miami, Florida, around a lot of bad influences. In my early teen years, I was out of control. I ended up in a program for troubled youth. I was lucky. Later in my childhood, I had a couple of great mentors who pushed education enough to help me create a better future. They showed me that education leads to success. I'm living proof that you can make it through tough times and come out on top. I think that kids understand my message. 
the third and long benefits the kids because they learn responsibility, they learn how to mix in the community, they learn reading, they, we take them to a lot of cultural events, um, mixing with people, staying off of the streets. It's just a great organization, and each year it grows and grows. You have to keep in mind that these are inner-city kids who have never had the opportunity to be able to touch and feel a professional athlete. And with this, they're able to do that, and I think uh, to see those kids' eyes spark and shine, uh, you, you just have to be there to see it happen, and I think Derek makes it happen. My favorite thing about Third Long is that you get to meet other football players from different teams and the Chiefs. Appropriately, Wikipedia speaks of this under a heading called Legacy. In 1990, very early in the NFL career, he's drafted in 89, Derek Thomas founded the Derek Thomas Third and Long Foundation. The foundation's mission is to sack illiteracy and change the lives of 9- to 13-year-old urban children facing challenging and even life-threatening situations, starting in the Kansas City area. Through social, cultural, and educational activities and programs, the Third and Long Foundation helps participating children succeed in school and in the outside world, despite possessing seemingly insurmountable obstacles. The other reason that I bring up Derek Thomas at this time a more prominent reason in my mind than speaking just about you know, the NFL draft is to talk about the Third and Long Foundation that you know, he and Neil Smith, another Kansas City Chief player, were critical in putting together. They're having their celebrity golf tournament coming up on Monday, May 6th, 2013. So in the first week of May, the first Monday of May, coming up just around the corner, uh, anybody who would like to, uh, to donate or to in some ways register or participate to give back through this organization – this is uh, an event that gives that opportunity through the Blue Hills Country Club of Kansas City, Missouri. The other reason that I wanted to mention Derek Thomas with this particular topic dealing with schools and different methods of education was going to be the Derek Thomas Academy. The Derek Thomas Academy is a tuition-free public charter school in Kansas City, Missouri. It opened in 2001 after Derek Thomas's death and was named for the former Kansas City Chiefs linebacker. Now, one of the problems that I've got with naming the DTA in this context as a charter school example is that they have recently lost their charter, or at least there's a negotiation going on now that the University of Missouri at Kansas City has withdrawn their support based on you know challenging results and difficulty in maintaining the academic standards that are part of the mission statement of the organization. This is one of the challenges that charter schools will have, is that since many of them, this one in particular, are reaching out to children who are in at-risk situations, dealing with situations where the home life or the neighborhood or the uh, economic situations are not ideal, people who otherwise would be left in public schools, in my opinion, in most voucher situations, most voucher programs, where that idea doesn't really reach out and, and cover the needs of every single child, the ones who are left, either in the public school environment or through charter programs like this, are going to be facing a certain amount of, well, a certain amount of challenge. The least resourced schools are left handling some of the bigger resourced problems, and it doesn't necessarily work. It is nevertheless a noble effort, one that I have much more respect for than the gamesmanship of the relationship between public schools, vouchers, and private schools. In this case, it is still a public school responsibility being performed without the use of uh, tuition and by using tax dollars that are part of the public school program being connected in many ways directly with public school programs. And although there are many models, the ones that are successful 
function essentially as an adjunct to public schools. Unfortunately, being able to cite the Derek Thomas Academy as an example here, perfect though it might be, simply won't work because of the realities of the challenges faced by those schools, and in this case, the Derek Thomas Academy. I say that I didn't have a genuine charter school situation in the city where I lived. That's not exactly true. There was a magnet school that was, again, serving this idea, in that case, of fomenting racial harmony in a city that was divided almost along racial lines for many years, north and south, by taking a school that was in one of the northern inner-city school districts and maintaining a strict 50-50 balance between white students and black students, and at the same time, maintaining very high academic and athletic standards. Essentially, it created a volunteer form of inverse busing, whereby kids who otherwise would not have probably gone to school in a neighborhood that far north of where they lived chose to do so voluntarily, including a couple of very good friends of mine. This model, as Derek Thomas described in the audio clip I played, of creating mentor situations where kids who otherwise might be neglected might fall through the cracks can get the attention they need at that crucial point in time, is the way forward. It's a way forward that makes the assumption, in my opinion, that the amount of resources that we've got available to us in public schools, in charter schools, frankly, even for people who choose to homeschool, cannot be diluted by us being diluted by the notion that our taxes somehow function as a tuition. If you've got some dialogue to put into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The website has show notes with comments enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Thanks for listening.